Well, we are continuing to follow Jesus together in the Gospel of John. And this morning, as we're moving through the text, we have a shorter passage, three verses, John 14, 25, 26, and 27. If you're taking notes, the title of the message this morning is, Who is the Holy Spirit? Part 2. This builds off what Jesus taught us two weeks ago, up in verses 16 and 17. Before I go any further, I want to set God's word before us and pray, and then we will get into the message. John chapter 14, verse 25. Jesus is in the middle of speaking, and he says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This is God's word. Let's look to him together in prayer. Father, we want to bring before you, uh, first, being mindful of the, our sisters in this church family who are driving home right now from the women's retreat, and pray that you would both give safe travel and even more so bear fruit from the teaching and fellowship around your word in these women's lives, that you would increase the fellowship in this church through that ministry, increase their Christ-likeness in you and more. And Lord, we pray the same for ourselves. We pray that as we are here with your word open, that you, by your spirit, would magnify Jesus and glorify the Father so that our joy would be made full in him. Lord, as you speak to us from your word, we pray that your spirit would grant us understanding And not only understanding, but that we would receive and believe all that you say to us today. To that end, Lord, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Everyone said, Amen. Peace, comfort, and meaning. Those three words, peace, comfort, and meaning, those three words, that is what every person seeks after. We, we could add more. We could add love. and But peace, comfort, and meaning is what every person in this world seeks after in their life. And the question is, where do they find it? And the real question is for you, where do you find it? We all seek peace. We all seek comfort. We all seek meaning and more. For some, it's acceptance by the group. You adhere to the group's standards, you meet the group's requirements, whatever that group is, and there's many groups, and if we have acceptance in the group, a good place with the people, then we feel that we have peace, comfort, or meaning. For others, it's achievement. It can be achievement both sport, recreationally, academically, at work, or some other metric that we set for ourselves that if someone achieves this thing, if they can just do that, be recognized for it, then they will have peace, comfort, and meaning in their life. Still, others, for many, it's the relationship. If I can get into this relationship, perhaps if I can get out of this relationship, if I can achieve this place in a relationship, then I'll have peace, comfort, and meaning. And questions before us, before you personally, is who or what 
gives ultimate meaning to your life. Truly, deeply, honestly. The question before us is who or what gives you ultimate comfort and peace? As these ideas, peace, comfort, and meaning that are in jeopardy for the apostles as we meet them once again here in this upper room discourse, here in this farewell address of Jesus, Jesus has announced his departure. He's given them his word these past three years and some change. Jesus has hinted at his death and his and his leaving them. And they don't understand. They understand dimly. They don't understand about his death. They, they know that he's leaving. And so the, the disciples have troubled hearts. We learn that back up in 14.1. They have troubled hearts like shaking leaves. Their peace in Jesus, the comfort that he provides, and even the meaning of their lives attached to his word is now being jeopardized. And it's beginning to crumble beneath them. And so they are troubled. We're no different. We're no different from them. We too can forget Christ's word and his promises. We too can misunderstand and doubt. And we can even be gospel amnesiacs and forget who Jesus is, both in his life, death, burial and resurrection and ascension in our place. We're no different from these guys. As with the apostles, so with us today, Jesus seeks to put peace and comfort and meaning and to stabilize what is destabilized in their lives. And for many of us walking in here, you might feel destabilized. And you may begin to question Christ and his word and even the reality of his presence in your life. So as with the apostles, so with us today, in our text, Jesus will do the unexpected. And in doing so, he will give us his peace. He will give us his comfort He will establish his meaning with his word. And the question is how? And to answer that, we have John 14, 25, 26, and 27. If you're taking notes, the sermon comes in two parts this morning. Here they are. Point number one, don't be troubled. The Spirit teaches you Jesus' word. That's verses 25 and 26. Then we'll move into our second point. Again, don't be troubled. The Spirit gives you Jesus's peace. Well, let's jump right in to point number one. Don't be troubled. The Spirit teaches you Jesus's word. Let's pick up in verse 25. Our attention will be on verse 26. These things, Jesus says, I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Well, if you have been with us these past weeks that we've been in the Gospel of John, as I mentioned a few moments ago, Jesus now in verse 26 is adding to what he revealed to us about the Holy Spirit up in verses 16 and 17. That's that's why the sermon is entitled, Who is the Holy Spirit? Part 2. And what Jesus does here in verse 26 is he reveals more of the Spirit's paraclete ministry. Perhaps if you were here, we recall that strange word that we thought about. But imagine something with me for a moment. The disciples are destabilized. They have been there. Jesus has washed their feet, dried them off. Judas has left to betray. 
Jesus has said he's leaving to go prepare a place for them. And he's hinted at his death. They're perplexed. The worst news they could possibly get is that he's leaving, and they don't understand that he's dying. And a few days from our text, Jesus will be risen from the grave and commissioning the apostles to go with the gospel and to proclaim the good news of Jesus, all of Christ, from all of Scripture. But a question is, how would they remember all the details? How would they remember so much teaching and ministry of Jesus in those three infinitely long but seemingly short years of ministry? How would they remember and how would they convey it to us? Remember what John says in the last few verses of this gospel. He said, if everything Jesus said and did actually was written down, the earth is not big enough to contain all the books needed to chronicle three years of Jesus's life. And then that begs the question for us. That is an interesting point. How can we trust the book that's in our laps and have confidence that it is, in fact, the word of God? And the answer to this question is, how can we trust this word and and how alone can we trust those apostles? The answer Jesus gives in verse 26 is the promised helper, the Holy Spirit. Now, two weeks ago, Jesus introduced us to that word helper. That word, he said that he's going to give another helper, the spirit of truth. And that word helper we investigated is the Greek word paraclete. And it's a very difficult word to translate, which is why many of our English translations take that term and translate it as helper or comforter or counselor or friend. And some don't even bother translating it. They just put paraclete there in the Bible. And two weeks ago, we were helped. I want to remind us of a large quote a commentator gave us to understand the amazing meaning by what it means that Jesus is, uh, rather the Spirit is the helper, the Holy Spirit, here in verse 26. Last week, we were told this. The title, Paraclete, expresses the intimate presence of God with his people. A presence that formally began with the incarnation of Jesus and will carry on into the new creation. For this reason, the title Paraclete refers to the ministerial office of the Trinitarian God. For his people, both occupied by the Son of God, who was the first Paraclete, and the Spirit of God is the second Paraclete. First Jesus, now the Spirit. They both witness to God the Father. They speak on behalf of God the Father. They console, they guide, they teach the way of God and the work of God. This is why paraclete cannot be translated into any one English word or concept. For paraclete is the title of an office of God. And the one from which he ministers to his people he loves. Paraclete is a term that guarantees that God is present and that nothing, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor future, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's what helper means. So just insert that definition As you read through and we are reminded that when Jesus says that he is going to ask the father to send the helper, the paraclete, he says another one. 
And the importance in the Greek there is that's not another of a different kind. It's another of the same kind. This is important. Because what this implies here in verse 26, but the helper whom the Holy, the, the, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. This means then that the Holy Spirit, as the same kind of helper of Jesus, the second one, it means that the Holy Spirit, his ministry is with Jesus's authority. It's very important to understand that. Jesus asks the Father. The Father sends the Spirit in the name of Jesus. Which means the Spirit's ministry in us now and in the universal and the global church. The ministry of the Spirit is with Jesus' authority. And He acts in Jesus' place. Now we looked at this in detail two weeks ago. But what this means then is that if a Christian or a church claims that the Spirit is moving and active among them, and the gospel of Jesus Christ is not magnified, the Father is not glorified, if Jesus is not being made famous in that place, people are repenting of sins and getting saved, and believers are becoming more faithful in their walk with Jesus, then I question if that's activity of the Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit comes in Jesus' name to continue Jesus' ministry in and through the church. So a central role here we see Jesus teaches us in verse 26. A central role of the Holy Spirit as helper paraclete, building on last time, was to bring the writing of the Bible to a close. How can I say that from verse 26? Look Look at this description here it says the helper the holy spirit whom the father will send in my name speaking to the apostles he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that i have said to you so the apostles though they don't realize it are being commissioned and prepared by jesus so that in acts 2 when he pours out the holy spirit These guys are going to bring the writing of the Bible to its completion and end. The Spirit's going to remind them of all that Jesus said and teach all that Jesus said. Why is this significant? If it was merely man's perspective, then you might be right if you said the Bible is merely hunches and merely spiritual speculations, and religious embellishments, and faded memory of these apostles. You might be right if verse 26 wasn't in your Bible. But verse 26 says, The agency of the Spirit in the life of the apostles, to summarize, is to teach and bring to remembrance. That is why we can, as Christians... Because of the ministry of the Spirit, through the apostles, you can trust all of your life in this age and the eternal next to every single word written in the Scriptures. We can trust because our trust is not in the apostles. Our trust is in the Spirit of Christ in the apostles, the Holy Spirit. That's why on this verse, if you've been around, you've heard me say this a few times. Now I get to actually explain myself. You've heard me say that the whole New Testament is red letter. 
What do I mean by that? Well, some of you right now, your Bible's open, and, and certain editions of the English Bibles we have, they put the font into red ink so that your signals to you that that's Jesus is speaking. That's helpful. It's a, it's a good thing. But there's a problem. In certain segments of the church, people wrongly pit the red letter words of Jesus against the black letter words of Paul or John or Peter or James or just go on down the list. And what ends up happening is these people say the red letters are the most important words in the Bible and they basically kind of make a Bible within the Bible, thereby ruining the Bible. And what we see in verse 26, the reason this is significant is the whole Bible is red letter because the Spirit inspires and empowers the apostles to finish writing, as it were, the words of Christ, teaching and reminding. That's why I say the whole New Testament is red letter. I also think the whole Old Testament is red letter because of Luke 24, but you can read that on your own. I don't have time to talk about that. But this is why it's a fool's errand to pit Jesus' words in the gospel from Jesus' words in, say, Hebrews or any other book. It's all red letter. It's all the book of Christ. It's all by Christ's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete like Him who has inspired the authors. And so everything that Paul wrote, Peter, James, John, and so on, the Holy Spirit reminded them and taught them Jesus' words. There's a problem it's an unintended uh, accident, an unintended assumption that we have. If you read books and commentaries, perhaps listen to the sermons or the podcasts or watch the YouTube videos, there is a tendency to focus on the human authorship, lowercase a, authorship of the Bible at the expense of divine authorship. God is... In Christ, through the Spirit, the capital A author from page one to page last. Genesis to Revelation. And we would do well to let that pendulum swing back to the focus of divine authorship. Now, part of that is because a hundred years ago, a bunch of people who didn't believe God existed and Jesus didn't do any miracles, he was just a wise sage, disregarded divine authorship and assumed that the Bible was only written by errant humans And so they're looking for errors all over the place. And the church has had to fight that for about 100 to 200 years. We need to recover the strong, oak-like sturdiness of the divine authorship of Scripture. And that's what we find here in Jesus' teaching in verse 26. That means that when your head hits the pillow tonight, you can rest with a smile on your face, knowing that you have not been a fool to entrust all of your life to the good gospel of Jesus explained across the pages of our Bibles. And Peter speaks to this. Peter actually says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21, he explains or, or um, uh, elaborates on, almost commentates on what Jesus says here. In 2 Peter 1, it's a long passage, verses 16 to 21. Listen to Peter reflect on the writing of Scripture. He says, For we, referring to the apostles, the 11 plus Paul, did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Jesus on the holy mountain. He's talking about the transfiguration. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And look at these last two verses. Knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Pause. He just referred to, in verse 19, the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Then he just said here, no prophecy of Scripture. When he says prophecy of Scripture you might think that, oh, he's talking about all of the, this was to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah said, for example. You need to understand that it includes that, but the entire Bible itself is prophetic. The whole Old Testament itself is prophetic in different ways, preparing for and prophesying of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when he says that knowing, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, he's talking about the whole Bible. Knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So here Peter elaborates on that teaching and reminding ministry of the Holy Spirit, clarifying that we don't believe in fables. We believe in the truth, both that was witnessed and by the Holy Spirit written to be a witness to the real events of what happened. Now, this is a bit heady, but I I want you to see that because what Jesus is showing us and showing you is that you should have utmost confidence in the Bible. But when he talks about the teaching and reminding ministry, he's speaking at to the apostles, right? No more books of the Bible are being written. When John finished Revelation and said they all lived happily ever after, any so-called holy books that have come since the book of Revelation are not holy books. There is no other divine scripture at all than these books. But there's an implication The implication is that what verse 26 says has implications for your life right now. What do I mean? The Bible teaches that in a different way, that what Jesus is talking about here, the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit still continues in your life, and the reminding ministry of the Holy Spirit still continues in your life, just not like an apostle. What do I mean? Consider 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 to 16. Listen to this description of understanding the word of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but note this, taught by the spirit. 
interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person is the person who's not born again. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now, there's a lot going there in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and there's more to say. But from this, we have the doctrine of illumination. Meaning, it requires the ministry of the Holy Spirit for you to not only understand, but to receive and believe anything the Bible says. So part of his helper paraclete ministry is to uh, illuminate or shine the light on the truth and meaning of God's word for believers. So a non-Christian can certainly parse verbs and define terms and trace a grammatical structure of the text. There are even um, commentaries written in the history of the church by unbelievers that are pretty good in explaining what the Bible says. The difference is, the devil knows everything, but he doesn't believe. He doesn't have faith. The difference is, what the Holy Spirit does in the life of a believer is grants belief or discernment, spiritually discerned, understanding. So this isn't hidden knowledge, secret knowledge, it's heart knowledge. You need to have a born-again, new creation heart of the new covenant by the Holy Spirit to believe what the Word says. Let me say this differently. The same Spirit who taught the apostles what to say is the same Spirit who teaches us what they mean. There's two different senses of teaching. One sense is, say these things. That's to the apostles. And to the rest of us, it's understand these things. So his teaching ministry continues. And also those times... When scripture comes to mind almost randomly, maybe you're in a conversation with somebody, or maybe you're having a really hard time and a text comes to mind. Maybe you're talking to someone and you start quoting some scripture you didn't even know you had memorized, and it's pretty close to word perfect. That's also, I think, an aspect of the reminding ministry of the Holy Spirit right now in your life. So what you should see here is that the credit for you understanding the Bible and the credit for you believing the Bible is not credited to you. It's in the Holy Spirit. It's He is the one who illuminates and more so that we would understand and believe. So what I want you to see here is Jesus, remember what he's doing. He is seeking to untrouble the troubled hearts of the disciples. And they have losing their peace, losing their comfort, losing their meaning in Christ because he's leaving and they don't understand what's going on. And so the comfort that they receive is from the helper, the Holy Spirit, because Jesus says he's going to come to you and remind you and teach you. So friends, the same is with you. The Holy Spirit's ministry in our life is personally to remind us of the word of God. But more so, the Holy Spirit's ministry is to use other people in the life of the church 
to speak the word of God to you in your life, speaking the truth and love to remind you of the spirit to have peace, comfort, and meaning through the word of Christ. That's why we need each other. So as Jesus moves on from this verse, what we see then is we're not to be troubled. Don't be troubled, dear Christians. The spirit teaches Jesus' word. And even more, the spirit gives you Jesus' peace. Point number two. Don't be troubled. The Spirit gives you Jesus' peace. Look with me at verse 27, please. Jesus continues, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. First, notice the contrast. Jesus says, not as the world gives, do I give to you peace. What is the world's peace? What what does the world give? How does the world define peace? What is the world's opposite and false peace compared to Jesus's? To answer that question, I did what anybody, any sensible person would do. I googled it. And guess where I was taken? Oprah. And so on Oprah's website, as an example of not as the world gives, do I give to you peace, on Oprah's website, the article that I read said that each human being has a, quote, deeper inner well of peace and serenity. It's some type of spiritual thing inside of you, and that you need to tap into it through micro practices. And when you do these micro practices, because you are your own peace, you just draw water from the wells of your own peace so you can have peace. Remember, this is the world's opposite and false peace. In this article, here then is when the stressful job is crushing you, when the exam is plaguing you. When life seems to be falling apart, when the spouse abandons you, when the friend dies or the prognosis is grim, the best the world can give through Oprah is that you need to do micro practices like breathing. And you need to feel the truth that you are loved and safe. Come to Wednesday nights to find out what we think about that. You need to visualize your happy place. You need to have deeper self-compassion on yourself. And you, gentlemen, listen, you need to maintain good hygiene. And those are the things, there's a few others, but those, those are the best. Number one hit on Google, the priestess of this world, Oprah, what she gives on her website is that if the cancer comes back, And if you're abandoned, leaving you with the kids and you lose your job because of the illness, you just need to feel the truth that you're loved. And not by God, because in this equation, there is no God. Now, I am saying these things. You you, you might not, you might be investigating the claims of Christ. And and perhaps this is the best that you have to turn to. Friend, I'm not saying these things to you to shame you or embarrass you. I I want to show these things to you and expose them for the fraud that they are. Because you know what? You need Jesus. Because Jesus alone, who is the way, the truth, and the life, 
all the places that you have turned to for peace, Jesus has just said in verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. The question is, how do we get that peace of Jesus? The world can only give you a false promise and false platitudes because it can't deliver. So the world tells you with all these practices, turn in on yourself, lower your blood pressure, change your nutrition, and and control your heart rate. But that's superficial. It's a tourniquet on a bleeding out artery. No matter how many false platitudes the world can come up with in a world without God, peace is nothing more than an illusion and a fiction and a species of escapism. And the last thing that you can do is to turn in on yourself as if you had a deeper inner well resources of peace and serenity that is you. Friend, you don't. None of us do. In a world without God, there is no meaning, there is no purpose, there is no significance, there is no peace, comfort, or meaning without God. It is all merely a mist of nothingness. So please hear, there is no peace without peace with God. But true, eternal peace comes from Jesus alone, and he is a glad giver of that peace. Peace I live with you, my peace I give to you. That word peace in the Bible is rich, deep, and old. It's as old as the book of Genesis and comes to us now. It's the Hebrew word shalom. There's a number of different words for peace in Greek and Hebrew. But in the Bible, peace is three-dimensional. And the first dimension, the shape of it as we turn it in our hands, peace, the first thing to note is that peace in the Bible is first and always and necessarily vertical, meaning peace with God. Meaning, peace with God is your and my, our ending of our sinful hostility, our sinful indifference, our sinful rebellion against Him, disregarding His word and ways, and trying to make our own kingdom in His pre-existing kingdom. Having peace with God vertically means that God has good and right, just measured wrath against us for our rebellion against Him. But Jesus is our substitute and Jesus is our champion in life, living in our place, doing for us what we couldn't and wouldn't do. In his death, taking our sins upon the cross, in our place, all of them, past, present, and future. And then conquering Satan and death through his resurrection for our justification. Jesus has made atonement. He has, big Bible word, propitiated the Father because He died for us and His righteousness is given to us all on the cross, all is our substitute. So when you have peace with God vertically through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, we are reconciled to the Father. We are adopted into the Father's family through the blood of Christ made His daughters and sons. That's the vertical peace Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. They don't understand that he's going to go to the cross soon from this text to establish vertical peace with God. But the Bible also speaks secondarily of this three-dimensional peace horizontally. You have peace with your redeemed neighbor. Right? Ephesians 2 tells us that Jesus in his death broke down every dividing wall of hostility that you and I and all humanity can build up 
to divide people from people, now as new creations in Christ, unified by His Spirit, we have peace with one another as the family of God. And then third and finally, the third way the Bible speaks about peace is is internal peace. Not because of resources in you, but because of who is in you. And that's the connection. It's the presence of the Spirit of Christ in you. Verse 27, when Jesus says, peace I leave with you and peace I give to you, is not divorced from verse 26. The continuing ministry of the Holy Spirit is not just to teach and remind, it's to administer the peace of Christ to you. And so the idea of internal peace, the Hebrew idea of shalom, includes the idea of wholeness rather than fragmentation. Oneness rather than disintegration. This would be like your conscience and your desires and your beliefs and your emotions all in happy harmony with the gospel of Christ. And that's what Jesus' emphasis is here. He is going to the cross to establish vertical peace, to create horizontal peace. But these troubled hearts that shake like leaves, like disturbed water, Jesus is speaking to the internal peace. But you need to know that you can't have the internal peace without the vertical peace with the Father. This is believing God's word more than what our eyes see, hearts feel, and minds think. And while the peace of Christ is here, these three, the disciples, in their despair, Jesus is putting his peace into their hearts with the truth of his word. And we too despair. Friends, you must know that there's a peace of Christ that is ministered by the Spirit in our lives that supersedes all the troubles and trials, all the valleys of the shadow of death that our good shepherd leads us through. Friends, there is peace to be had in Christ. And if you don't know him, it's this threefold peace that you desperately need for eternal salvation. To repent of your sins and renounce them and to believe in Jesus. But dear friends, if we are honest, all of us are either coming out of some form of despair, are in despair, or will be going into despair, troubles and trials at some point. The role of the Spirit is to give you more of Jesus, more of the Prince of Peace. I am slowly reading through a children's adaptation of the Pilgrim's Progress to my family. And just last night, in this allegory, our little hero, a rabbit named Christian, with his friend Hopeful, have been traveling on the way to the celestial city in this allegory, And they have wandered off the path and have been captured by the giant despair and brought into his castle and he beats them and brutalizes them and hurts them and scares them. They won't die. And so the giant despair comes day after day until the good king from the celestial city dispatches an angel to go to our hurt little pilgrim, dear Christian, to whisper into his ear and remind him of something he already has. Because when he became a Christian, he was given a cloak, a cloak to protect him on his journeys 
And in that cloak that every Christian receives, the king sews a little pocket. And in that little pocket is a little key. And that little key is called the key of promise. And that key of promise is all the truths and promises of the word of God. And so little Christian and hopeful are brought to their senses when angel whispers in their ear the key of promise. And they kick themselves for being fools and forgetting and he rummages around and finds the key and he opens it and that key effortlessly and easily unlocks every chain and door of the despairing castle where giant despair lives and off into freedom they go. You have a key of promise. And it's sewn into the same cloak that Jesus has given you when you believed and were born again. You need to administer this key of promise in your life. You need this key because there is no peace, or rather this peace that Jesus gives is not the promise of escape from reality. It's not a promise to go around the valley of shadow of death. It's to carry you through the valley of the shadow of death. But to have a courageous serenity even in the midst of troubles. And this peace involves not looking within at myself, but looking without to Christ and His Word in the power of the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. Friends, this key of promise that you hold unlocks the dungeons of despair. This key opens doors like like Philippians 4. Have you ever walked through that door before? Philippians 4, 4 through 9. In the midst of anxiety and fear, here's what the Word says. A key of promise. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, meaning all biblical things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. You need to use your key of promise to unlock that door. Usually we shorten it just to the prayer part about not being anxious. But see how he begins by saying, rejoice in the Lord always. And that rejoicing in the Lord may not necessarily mean that your feelings match that rejoicing. It's the external objective reality that you have been born again, bought with the blood of Jesus and saved. To think Bible thoughts and to walk in the ways of Jesus and to cast all of our cares at his throne and the peace of the God of peace will be with you. Keep that key in your pocket. The promise of Christ by the Spirit is not a promise to remove you from trouble and hardship. It's to let His peace, comfort, and meaning carry you through hardship. It's the promise that there still can be pain. 
still persecution, still sorrow, still tears, and still death. But peace is never lost because it's not rooted in you. It's rooted in the spirit of peace from the peace of Christ, from the God of peace in you. Which also means then the peace of God fuels your perseverance in faith. Because you can read this word and think, I don't have this peace. I think I love Jesus, but I don't feel it. I don't sense it. Friend, that's where you need to understand that the source of this peace isn't rooted in your feelings. It's rooted in the Spirit's ability to administer Christ to you, which is a perfect ability, and Christ's ability to good shepherd you through the valley of the shadow of death. So peace, from our perspective, may ebb and flow, but the Word of God never changes, which is why Paul told us in Philippians 4 to renew our minds, as it were, with the Word of God and to preach that gospel to ourselves when we are gospel, gospel amnesiacs and don't believe it. And this is why, friends, Jesus ends where he began. In verse 1 of 14, he said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And now he ends in verse 27. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. The Spirit of Christ puts the courage of Christ in us. I need to remind you, friends, that right now, Jesus embodied king of the universe is comfortably seated on his throne he is not anxious he is not troubled he is relaxed on the throne room of the universe as he administers and governs all things when will subdue all his enemies and will rule with his word and he has asked the father to send the paraclete the helper the holy spirit and the spirit has been poured out acts chapter 2 And now we here sit upon believing the apostolic word. So if you don't believe in God's son, Jesus Christ, today, friend, renounce your sin. Repent of them. Believe in Jesus and find that peace with God, peace with others, and peace within yourself that only comes from Christ. And Christian, the spirit has given you a key and it's always available. Use that key of promise. Cling to Christ when you can't see him or feel him, so to speak. And let not your heart be troubled. Amen? Lord, we thank you for the gift of Christ, of the Spirit, of the Word, of your peace, of your gospel plan. And so, Lord, we are yours. And Lord, in being yours, would you please put that peace which is already in us, on display so that the world would see the hope of Christ in us through how we navigate this world. Father, magnify your Son, we pray in Christ's name. And everyone said, Amen.